Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a guest to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason. We'll talk about what excites us, what delights us, maybe what frustrates us. Afterward, we'll have a little bit of silliness and a game. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Dr. Emily Jones. She's the author of Write Romance, Heroic Subjectivity, and Elect Community in 17th Century England, and is an associate professor of English at the University of South Florida. Her areas of specialty include early modern literature, Milton, Shakespeare, and women writers. Emily, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Charlie. I was really delighted to be asked. Before we get to the poem, because you brought in Sonnet 45 from Sir Philip Sidney's uh, Astrophil and Stella, can you just give us the context of the sonnet sequence as a whole? So sonnet sequences were really popular in Elizabethan England. They came from Petrarch's Italian sonnet sequence, which was this long collection of sonnets that he wrote about his love for a woman named Laura or Laura. And then they came over to England and people started writing their own sonnet sequences, usually about love, though not always. Philip Sidney was an Elizabethan courtier. He was sort of a golden boy who was good at everything. Uh, he was a knight. He could joust. He was a warrior. He actually died in battle. He he was like a sportsman. He played tennis. He wrote all kinds of things, literary criticism, romance, poetry. And so he was, uh, even in his own time, people sort of saw him as this like Renaissance man who was so cool and could do everything. And he wrote Astrophil and Stella about a girl, right? Not surprisingly, that he loved uh, named Penelope Devereux. She was Penelope Rich eventually because she got married, uh, unfortunately for him. And uh, Astrophil and Stella means in if you if you play with the Latin and Greek. So Astrophil is star lover, and then Stella is star in Latin. So it's the star lover and the star. Uh, and then the Phil in Astrophil is also a little play with with Philip Sidney's first name, right? He's Phil. Um, and so part of kind of the gimmick or the game behind Astrophil and Stella is that. Everybody knew who these poems were about. They knew that they were Philip Sidney's poems about this married woman that he was in love with and about this sort of complicated relationship that they had. But at the same time, there's sort of this veneer of plausible deniability where their names are disguised. And when I teach it, Taylor Swift's name keeps coming up because, you know, she writes <laughs> these songs about, you know, her, her various love interests and Good. boyfriends and partners. And people are always saying, oh, you know, this is about this and this is about that. And so Sidney's sequence kind of invites us to do that a little bit where, you know, he refers to specific people and events, but not by name. And so, you know, you're, you, the, the people in the know are kind of playing the game with it. That's great. I've recently turned the corner on Taylor Swift. I was very curmudgeonly about her for a long time. And strangely enough, now that now that she's dating a famous football player and right. men are angry about it, I'm like, let them be. It's fine. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why that is the thing that triggered me to be, she's fine. Well, go ahead and uh, read the sonnet, and then I'll ask you for a quick gloss, and then we'll talk. Sure. So this is number 45. Uh, it's from the middle of the sequence. Stella oft sees the very face of woe painted in my beclouded stormy face, but cannot skill to pity my disgrace, not though thereof the cause herself she know. Yet... Hearing late a fable which did show of lovers never known a grievous case, pity thereof gat in her breast such place that from the sea derived tear spring did flow. Alas, if fancy, drawn by imaged things though false, yet with free scope more grace doth breed than servants rack where new doubts honour brings, then think, my dear, 
that you in me do read of lover's ruin some sad tragedy i am not i pity the tale of me oh thank you i love that last line so much and i'm, yeah, I'm sure we'll get into it <laughs> can you give us just a quick paraphrase of the poem and then we'll we'll head off sure sure definitely so astrophil the the speaker is sad right because he uh he loves stella and she's not uh, she's not giving him grace right the, the whole the whole sequence is about winning stella's grace right her favor which means a range of different things you know any anything ranging from you know will will she like me back to will she go to bed with me so stella has been saying no and uh, when he says stella oft sees the very face of woe painted in my beclouded stormy face but cannot skill to pity my disgrace not though they're of the cause herself she know he's saying you know she can see how sad i am she can see my stormy face but she uh she doesn't know how to feel pity for me even though she knows that she's the reason that i'm sad all right so she knows all about it she knows why but she doesn't she doesn't take pity on me yet Hearing late a fable which did show of lovers never known a grievous case, pity thereof gat in her breast such place that from the sea derived tear spring did flow. So recently, though, she was listening to this story about love and lovers that she never met. She was listening to this sad story about love, and she felt so much pity that she started to cry like copiously. So the fictional story about lovers she never met makes her cry. Alas, if fancy drawn by imaged things, though false, yet with free scope more grace doth breed than servants rack, where new doubts honor brings. I'm going to pause there, even though it's not the end of the sentence. If your imagination, right, that you moved by imaginary things, even though they're not real, gets more grace, right, more favor out of you than than my ruin, right? When he's when he talks about servants rack, a servant means, you know, your lover who's so devoted to you. If you're more moved by fictional things than by my misery, because, you know, your your honor, your concern with your reputation is giving you pause and making you say no to me, then think, my dear, that you and me do read of a lover's ruin some sad tragedy. I am not I pity the tale of me. So let's pretend that when you look at me, you're reading a fictional story about the ruin of a lover, right? Pretend that I'm a fictional tragedy and not a real person. If you can, if you can imagine that I'm not myself, maybe you can feel sorry for the story that you see in me. That's fantastic. And it gives the, the poem a kind of double sadness. Yeah. You know, that, that to be pitied, to be as we may think of it, empathize in the language we use today rather than pity. He has to not be him. And it's it sort of creates this extra distance. Yeah. There's the irony of the extra distance between them. And the thing that stood out to me, and I've I haven't read Sydney really since when I got my master's degree. I read some of Astrophil and Stella uh -huh. as an undergrad and then a lot of the sequence in my master's program, but he's very irritated with her. He's kind of insulting. Basically, he seems to be commenting as if she, he thinks she's kind of dumb. <laughs> that that her inability, like, it's not just beclouded face or stormy face. It's beclouded stormy face. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so obvious that that this is the this is the problem. It's it's not just a story of lovers, but it's a grievous case mm -hmm. that she somehow there's something either obtuse in her behavior mm -hmm. or maybe even sort of like she can't recognize she cannot skill yeah, to pity my disgrace. I, I don't think he thinks that she's dumb, but I do think he finds her sort of willfully obtuse. Right. She's sort of choosing not to understand 
or or not to regard what's going on with him. And again, he says he says in uh, where new doubts honor brings. So if we if you sort of flip the syntax there, honor is bringing doubt to you. So he knows that it's because she's worried about her honor as a woman at court, and you know what it's going to mean if she does sort of take him as a lover or listen to him or yield to him. So I do think that he's frustrated, right, about about how this goes on. I don't really think that he's insulting her intelligence, but I do think that he's vexed, right, with with this sort of like, will she, won't she courtly game okay. that they're playing. Yeah. Yeah. That ex- that makes more sense. I think the, the key thing is his frustration. Yeah. That he can't get past that frustration. Uh, the cannot skill is the thing that kind of, that that's the, the phrase where it's like, she, yeah, she can't manage to, to do what should be easy, right? Yeah. Exactly. So why did you choose this poem? So I, I love Sydney. I'm a little bit of a Sydney fangirl, and I love Astrophil and Stella as a sequence. I actually, so I, I find Astrophil, the persona that Sydney makes for himself, really interesting and fun. You know, we were just talking about sort of his, his irritation or frustration, and maybe how it even makes him look a little bit unattractive, right? His, his sort of annoyance with this girl that he's supposedly so in love with. And I, I feel like Sydney, as a poet, right, writing the sequence, does a lot of work making Astrophil a difficult and complex speaker who sometimes you really enjoy his voice and sometimes he's whiny and annoying even as he is also annoyed and uh, you know we were talking about sort of the irony and the and the, the distancing and the double distancing you know even as he's making Astrophil a persona for himself he knows that people are going to read Astrophil as him right? That there's there's a very fine line between Astrophil the speaker and Philip Sidney the poet. And the reason that I picked this poem is that I think the end of it, right? I am not I, pity the tale of me, is sort of directly commenting on or facing up to this sort of elaborate game that the sonnet sequence is playing, where he the poet both is and is not the speaker. Astrophil says to Stella, you know, I'm not Astrophil. And uh, at a remove from that, you know, we're also dealing with the fact that Astrophil is and is not Sydney. And so there's sort of these multiple layers of like imagination and pretense and fictionality that's going on. Oh, I love that because it's, this seems to be fairly common in, in some of Shakespeare's sonnets too. There's this, the word will yeah. coming up in certain places. There's, a, right. I can't remember which one, but there's the some reader scholars read Hadeaway as a reference to Anne Hathaway, his wife, and and there's this sort of play about is this fictional or is this not? Um, and yes. For, for me, Shakespeare's sonnets are the comparison point because I have read the whole sequence and, and read a number of them, and this speaker mm-hmm. seems different just because the emotional tenor of so many of Shakespeare's sonnets turns to anger, and uh-huh. whereas this turns to kind of like. Like you said, it's kind of whiny. Although... It's kind of pleading and pathetic, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it, the, the note at the end, I am not I, pity the tale of me, for me at least crosses over that line in from whininess into a genuine sadness. Like this has become, uh-huh. there's there's the play, like you said, on the real Sydney versus Astrophil. Um, yeah. I wanted to make the joke, by the way, that Astrophil is not his uh, superhero name. Um <laughs> terrible, terrible joke. I'm shoehorning in here, but the, it, you know, it, it leads to this real sort of ontological question of of I can't even be myself, you know, in mm-hmm. this situation. That he can only mm-hmm. be a character. So there is the play mm-hmm. to it. There is the whininess, and there's also, I think, a kind of surprising emotional depth. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I, I that that really gets to the heart of what I like about the sequence and what I like about the persona. Right. He's he's a very flawed sort of speaker or persona. Um, he can also sometimes be very funny. There's a lot of humor throughout the sonnet sequence. Um, and I think that the that his, his conclusion, sort of his solution to the problem, well, just pretend I'm not real, is simultaneously sad and funny. Okay. Right. Pretend I'm a pretend I'm a character. But yeah, you know, underneath the sort of silliness and the whininess that Astorville sometimes shows, I think there is a lot of emotional depth. Well, the, that raises a question for me because it, it's pretty commonly understood that the sonnets, love songs in particular, are always about that beloved who can't be reached. And they really end up yeah. always being about the speaker. What do we learn in the sequence about Stella? What is she like to him beyond just mm. the sort of the name of the beloved and in life, uh -huh. uh, Penelope? Yeah, what what are the kind of cool things about the sequence? Um, and I think it's under talked about in the scholarship um, is that you actually get to know Stella better in Astorville and Stella than you get to know a lot of the women, the beloveds, right? In in the in various other people's sonnet sequences. An obvious point of contrast is is Petrarch's Laura, right? Who's sort of this unattainable goddess, mm -hmm. um, and and she's you know you know she doesn't really speak. She's just she she's so remote all the time. And in Astorville and Stella, the two of them are always interacting. There's this one interesting sonnet where he writes about hearing her read her poems back to him and they like come to mean something different for him than they did before so like they're in dialogue with each other things actually change over the course of the sequence where she's not totally unattainable only and always all the time yeah. like they he, he sort of gets to like first base with her where he uh <laughs> he, he gets her to kiss him Right. He gets her to agree to accept him as her, her servant, right? Her love, even though she still won't sleep with him. So they actually sort of do like go through this, you know, some of the steps in this sort of game of courtly love with each other. He writes about there are a lot of things that he says about Stella, and some of them are very typically sort of traditional, like, you know, she's the paragon of virtue. He both adores her because she's so virtuous and chaste, but that's also part of the frustration, right? She's so good, but then that means that she won't give in to me. He talks about how she's she's sort of this ideal muse, you know, if if any if any poet wants to learn how to write real love poetry that sounds real and not fake, all they have to do is look at her, right? And they'll be moved to do it. But you also get the impression, I think as you read through that he sees her as an intellectual equal, a conversation partner, right? Someone that he takes seriously, even even as he also gets frustrated with her. And and yeah, there are some times when he like reports things that she says to him. So like she gets a voice sort of in the poem poems, even though no, none of them are from her perspective. So so yeah, we I, I do think that we get a better sense of her as like an intelligent person who's kind of equal to this game that they're playing. She has agency in a way other beloveds, it sounds like, doesn't. Yeah, I think she does. I t I'm teaching this poem in a, a graduate course that I'm teaching right now. And we read this article by Melissa Sanchez, who's a great early modern scholar. And she, she has an interesting piece about Stella and Stella's own desire as it comes through the poem. And she says, you know, everyone who reads this poem wants to make it all about Astrophil's desire and, you know, wants to make Stella the chaste woman who has no desire. And if you actually read closely in the sequence, you see that that's not true. And I don't think we get it in this poem that I read, although we do get her ability, right, to feel passion. But there are other poems that do sort of 
make clear that she has interest in him, right? And that there's there's an erotic appeal and a charge to this game that they're playing for her too. And I do think that's unusual. And, and that makes sense in terms of just like the the structure of this poem, because so many English Renaissance sonnets, they're they're le- they tend to be less narrative within them, and they you right. know the, the first eight lines tend to sort of build and reiterate an idea before the turn. And mm-hmm. here it's it's much quicker to the narrative that the first four lines are establishing this is the situation. And then there's the mm-hmm. narrative turn very quickly mm-hmm. into the poem. And so it, there's a different kind of storytelling than there seems to be in a lot of Renaissance love, uh, at least love sonnets. Yeah. Yeah. I love sonnets. And, and I really like seeing the different things that sonneteers do with the turn, right? Where where they put it, whether there's, whether there's sort of like a false turn, right? That you, you think is the turn and then it fakes you out because actually there's a, there's a bigger one later. Sidney is one of those poets who I think is good at like multiple turns, and I think that you get them in this sonnet. There's the yet, right? Yet, hearing late a fable, which did show, you know, where we, as you say, we kind of dive into the narrative part of the poem. And then there's alas, right? Where he sort of takes a step back and says, you know, oh, well, if that's how you feel, how about I propose this? And then I think that the final line, I am not I, pity the tale of me, is sort of an emotional turn, right? In the in the final, the final couplet, or indeed the last line of the poem. It's not like it changes what they're talking about or changes the idea, but it, it is punchy, I think, in a way that, that kind of also makes it qualify as like a final turn. So I think you could arguably count up to three in this one. Absolutely. And even the the then think in the in the, you know, those last uh-huh. three lines. And yeah. And just to again, that last line, I just want to read it's not I am not me. I love that we get that I am not I. It mm-hmm. is the, I am not yeah. I. Yeah. It's not that he's not himself. He is not in a way the subject. And 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 right. so that's that's really that's I think really, really beautifully done. Yeah. He's like unmaking himself there. I have a question that takes us away from the poem a bit because sure. you mentioned that in the in the sequence she is sort of writing poems back to him. My Renaissance reading is is pretty pretty light, for, mm-hmm. you know, for someone someone with a PhD. Yeah, uh, I saw the twentieth century. So yeah, twentieth yeah. century. So you know, as a side note, for me throughout my graduate career and even now a little bit, there's a part of me that still feels like the Renaissance, like that's the real core of, of the English department. Like that's, you know, Shakespeare <laughs> is the great, anyway, I, I'm, I'm not I, I would like to, to think so. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't yeah. know how much of that's true, but it's like this image in my head. Are there female English sonneteers though in the Renaissance? Oh dude. Yeah. I'm, I'm always happy to talk <laughs> about, about female sonneteers. The first sonnet sequence in English was written by a woman. Really? Um, wow. I had no idea. Really? really really it's it's not very canonical right we're always sort of in in process of of reconsidering and revising the canon but before shakespeare before sydney and sydney is before shakespeare fyi uh, shortly before but before either of them in the i think i think the year is 1555 though i could be wrong about that there's a woman named anne Locke who is a protestant living in exile in geneva because Mary I is queen in, in England, and that's Bloody Mary, and she's persecuting Protestants. And she writes a, she presents it as a translation uh, of a psalm. Um, but every line of the psalm becomes a sonnet. And so, and so it's sort of like this extended meditation 
on part of scripture. And it's this, like like sonnet sequences, even though it's not about love, it, it's very personal, it's very psychological, sort of about the speaker's like torment and feelings of guilt and relationship to, to God and to salvation. And so, yeah, she, she has this sequence of sonnets that are based on based on the psalm uh, and so yeah the first sonnet sequence in the language is actually hers well that's that's so fascinating to me one because it's about a very different kind of love it's not mm-hmm. this sort of romantic tradition whereas i right. think the sonnet was just you know as we as it has been established in scholarly terms oh it's a love poem and granted the sonnet has changed a great deal mm-hmm. over the centuries have you read any uh diane seuss she's a contemporary poet unfortunately no i haven't She's I think you would find her really interesting. Her most recent book is called Frank and it's sonnets, but they're not at all traditional sonnets. Like most okay. of them don't rhyme. Many of them are not, not 14 lines. There was a contemporary poet named Paisley Rectal who was like, well, how are these sonnets? And it's basically it all has to do with the Volta, like the way that the poems yeah, turn. Yeah. Uh, but it's fascinating to me that the way that the sonnet actually enters English is not through this kind of romantic love poem that really appears. Right. So are writers like Sidney and Shakespeare familiar? Like how widespread is Anne Locke? I don't know how familiar they, they necessarily would have been with her. Sidney, actually, maybe, because Sidney and his family uh, were very devout Protestants, uh, and Sidney was well-educated and very well-read. So it's not crazy, right, to think that he could have been familiar with, with her writing. Yeah, he, he, he and his family were sort of members of this, like, extended European Protestant circle. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is possible. For clarity, there were other writers writing sonnets in English earlier than Enlock, but she's the first sequence writer, right? Uh, sorry, I'm trying to think of your, the rest of your, your question. Oh, right. How, whether, whether she would have been influential. Yeah, it, it's hard to know how much, right? I think especially with women writers, because they're, they're less likely both now and then sort of to be directly cited, even when they are influences. <laughs> but you were talking about, you know, the, these sonnets that don't have all the features of sonnets, uh, like they're not necessarily 14 lines, but they have a, a turn. In, in the early modern period, in the Renaissance, the sonnet wasn't always like strictly codified. So you get a lot of poems like that that are sonnet-ish, right? They're oh, okay. short and they have a volta, <laughs> but they may not be 14 lines. And women all over the place were writing short lyrics with turns in them. Queen Elizabeth wrote them. A- another person who wrote a long sonnet sequence was Sidney's niece, who kind of idolized him. Her name was, was Mary Roth. Uh, she also had a-, a-, a wild and cool life where she carried on this extended affair with her first cousin and had two of his children. And her sonnet sequence is all about like that tempestuous relationship. Again, kind of undercover of other names. Uh, but she's very consciously sort of imitating her uncle Philip Sidney, but putting her own like woman spin on the sonnet sequence. So yeah, women women were great sonneteers in in the early modern period, both both of of kind of traditional sonnets and like variations on them. Oh, that's fantastic! Are are love sonnets by women in the Renaissance? Do they follow this sort of template of unrequited love, and you know that we see in Shakespeare? Or and you mentioned Mary Roth that her sonnets are yeah. much more about the narrative of a mar- of a troubled marriage, which it seems like a very different kind of narrative. It is a different kind of narrative because it, it's not like, I mean, in a sense, it is about unrequited love, but unrequited in a different way, yeah. right? Because in, in the case of, of most 
love sonnets by men. The idea is that, you know, you, you can't get your beloved to favor you, right, to go to bed with you. In Mary Roth's case, right, she's writing about a band that she was having a long-term affair with. Okay. So the, the, the sort of sexual component is already in place. And the unrequitedness comes from the fact that he's not really faithful to her, right? He's, first of all, he's married to someone else right, while he's with her. <laughs> and then if, if, if you assume that the person she's writing about is the historical man, he wasn't faithful to either of them, right? He was kind of a dog who was <laughs> hanging around with many women. And so her unrequited passion is about her constancy of devotion in response to him, you know, being sort of ambivalent towards her. Uh, so, so again, it, it does take on kind of a different flavor. That's fantastic. Well, I'm going to put links to every poet you mentioned in the show notes. So if people want to yeah. head out to read uh, Mary Roth and Anne Locke, who sound also like their biographies are fantastically wild. Uh, yeah. So is there anything else you want to mention about this poem before we transition into the silliness and game? No, I don't think so. Nothing. I, I think we covered most of the most of the stuff that I was hoping we'd talk about. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for reading yeah. this in. I hadn't read Sydney in a long time. And I don't think I really was that interested in him when I was in grad school, but I think, mm -hmm. you know, I was young. I was, a, you know, young and yeah. wrong about most things. Now I'm, <laughs> now I'm older and wrong about most things. Before we get to the game, we have not one ad, but two. And by happenstance, Emily, they uh, relate to your field of study. So oh, first, terrific. CBS has an exciting new sitcom sure to appeal to modern lovers. There aren't just couples, there are throuples. And what happens when the trio is the dog from the Jetsons, the uncle from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and Miss Dubois from A Streetcar Named Desire? This fall on CBS, watch Astro, Phil, and Stella. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming. I should have. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was so tickled when I came up with this one. Uh, that's, that, that's, that's great. The second one is a little bit longer, so if you're listening and you need to fold some laundry, this might be a good time if you're not a fan of puns. William Shakespeare wrote, If music be the food of love, play on. Well, if food be the food of life, then eat up. Darden, the parent company of Olive Garden, Ruth's, Chris Steakhouse, and other fine eateries, is bringing something new to its family of restaurants designed to bring high culture to the United States. A franchise of Shakespeare-themed restaurants. You're guaranteed to love the cuisine, all designed by renowned French chef Guy Fieri, best known for his Ville de Saveur. Just listen to these options. Do you like a buffet meal with all the fixins? Try Henry VIII. How about classic British food? All's Wellington that ends Wellington. <laughs> At Burger King, you can have it your way, but at Rosalind's Grill, everything is as you like it. <laughs> you can try all the world's cuisines. Do you love Asian food? Grab your chopsticks and head down to ramen and julienne. Do you like <laughs> bruschetta? Everybody likes bruschetta, so head on to broilus and water Cressida. We <laughs> we have a. <laughs> this is getting very strained. <laughs> yes. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Absolutely. No. These... Unlike the quality of mercy. <laughs> which is not strained. These are these are these are not not all all natural puns. Uh, we have a great Spanish place, uh, Comida de Arroz, and a great Chinese place, the Comedy of Egg Rolls. Try Italian. <laughs> that's my wife's one, by the way. Thank you, Charlotte. Try right. Italian Egyptian fusion at Anchovy and Cleopasta, or maybe you don't want international cuisine. We have places devoted to soup, like a Midsummer Night's Dream. Or if you need a place for dudes who like soup and just want to go be dudes who like soup, how about Brothello, the broth-based brothel? <laughs> 
That's great. You're probably a fan. These keep going. Uh, this is right. this is very very thorough. <laughs> you probably enjoy meat. Do you like roast beef? We'll get ready for much au jus about nothing. Where of course you can get a hero. I was expecting a big laugh for much au jus about nothing. Much au jus about nothing. But, <laughs> sorry, oh I'm well. sorry. No, it's okay. I was still distracted by the the, the bro brothel. <laughs> Do you love seafood? Visit Love's Labor's Lobster, where they have an excellent king crab leer. Do you like deer meat? Head to the Merchant of Venison. If you like pork, you can try Cymbaloin or Hamlet. Uh, and if you like beef, get your knives ready for Coriolangus. Do you enjoy your chicken really, really fresh? Then head on down to the slaughterhouse slash restaurant, The Moan of Fat Hens. Um, for for non-Shakespeareans, The Moan of Fat Hens is Timon of Athens. Um, for, for the vegetarians and vegans among us, try the taming of the shroom or the tempehs. Uh, or maybe you want a salad, <laughs> you can visit our organic food stand and ask for ripped chard with three sides. Rip, ripped chard with three. That's my wife again. Um, yep. the, the good ones are mine. Um, and and <laughs> We recommend that you get as a side the Macbeth and cheese, but don't worry. If you spill it on yourself, it will be easy to get out that damned spot. When it's time for dessert, just try 12th Bite, where they have an excellent poached Pericles and Midsummer Night's Dream Sickle. And they also have a tasty one that you want to ask about the ingredients first. It is Titus Andrana Custard. Maybe you just <laughs> yeah. want to drink. We have a brewery, Brew Gentleman of Corona, and a winery of Vintner's Tale. We're almost done here. If you'd like to take some bread home, visit our artisanal bakery, Measure for Measure, where you can pick up a King Johnny cake. And if you need cutlery, try the Merry Knives of Winster or Henry Fork. If you're wondering why I haven't mentioned Julius Caesar, it turns out that there are no food puns uh, related to Julius Caesar. So, satisfied. Not a single one. Not one. Not one at all. Not no. one at all. Orange, orange, you glad. Oh, so satisfy your hunger. <laughs> at one of our Shakespeare-themed restaurants, we can feed any sweet tooth, savory tooth, or Richard tooth. Uh, thank you for indulging me. On to... <laughs> did you got almost all of them? How many? How many plays did you get in there? Uh, I got all of them except a a couple of the history plays. There, there yeah, I was, I was I was I was thinking histories, maybe not all of them, but I think everything else was in there. I left out. Yeah, I got all the comedies and tragedies, and I think at a certain point it was Henry Four, Henry Four Part. Too many one. Henrys. Yeah, too many Henrys. That that seems like a type should be the title of something. Too many Henrys. Yeah. Um, yeah. On to a game that I am calling Billy. Billy, don't you lose my number? In this game. She's, she looks appropriately horrified. In this game, <laughs> I will give you the first line of one of Shakespeare's sonnets, and I want you to tell oh, me no. the number. If you can, oh no! If you can recite, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. It, it, if you can recite the entire poem, you get bonus points. Oh, <laughs> okay. So, if I were to say, for example, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You would say sonnet eighteen. So eighteen. Yes. Okay. So, but man, you could have given me that one, and I could have looked cool for like one second. Well, you know, I, I thought about it. I was like, I could have gotten that in junior high. Like that's, if anybody knows a Shakespeare sonnet, they know 18, shall yeah. I compare it? I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself because while I'm okay with Shakespeare sonnets, I am extremely bad with numbers and with associating <laughs> numbers with poems. And I've actually, I, like every time I I teach them, I'm Church. like, I, I apologize to, to my students because I can never <laughs> remember the associated number. So go. I'm... <laughs> we'll, we'll see here. Dr. Emily yeah. Jones, are you ready to play Billy, Billy, Don't You Lose My Number? As as ready as I will ever be, yes. Number one, let me not to the marriage of true minds. Admit impediments. 
love is not love, which alters when an alteration finds or moves with the remover to remove. Ah, uh, it's very lovely, and I don't know, 80-something? 116. 116? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. This is this is the, the point. If, 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 if listeners haven't read the sonnets, they are not really in any particular order. Like, no. Scholars yeah. have said, oh, well, these last are the Dark Lady sonnets, and you can see some patterns, but not not really. It's 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 like Ariel by Sylvia Plath, where she didn't actually get to edit it before she died, uh, or she had a sequence, I, but Ted Hughes ruined it. I also want everyone to know that I have an anthology sitting next to me from which I I read Sydney, so I could cheat right now, and I'm not cheating. Good, so, good. If, yeah, yeah. You're just throwing us off the scent by getting the first one yeah. wrong. Number two, uh-huh. when to the sessions of sweet silent thought. Forty-seven. Thirty. Thirty. This is. <laughs> Those, by the way, are the only two I would have gotten right out of the five I chose. Uh, so, all right. Well, so, you're, then you're better than, than I. Well, and this is this is a little bit of a callback because uh, on our, our previous episode, my the person I was talking to, we could not remember the title of Remembrance of Things Past. We were sitting there mm-hmm. just, we know it's Proust, and it, it was a fiction writer, and, and mm-hmm. it, we just, we were lost. Number three, I think the puns actually lower everybody's collective IQ. And so any any memory you have numbers. Number three, and you're welcome, by the way, to recite if you have any of these memorized. Okay, yeah. You, usually I have like pieces rather than full sonnets, but I'll see what I can do. Yeah, I'm a terrible memorizer of poems. So number three, the expense, uh, the expense of spirit and a waste of shame. Expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust and action until action lust is... There's something. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's late because it's a dark lady sonnet mm-hmm. um, and it might be... 120? Very close. 129. 129. Okay. But I'm giving you the bonus points for reciting enough of of one and three. Number four, when I have seen by time's fell hand defaced. And that's not even one that I know very well. I'll just make up a number. 92. Well, 92 is a real number. You did not make that up. Yeah, I didn't make up the number. You're right. (laughs) It's 64. The last two, I was like, the the last two, I was like, Oh yeah, I guess those are sonnets. I they did not ring a bell with me at all. And the last one, being your slave, what should I do but tend? One seventeen. Fifty-seven. So you got one <laughs> one digit correct. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the thing. You're either a person who teaches the sonnets and knows all the numbers exactly, or and, you yeah, teach the I sonnets am, and I don't am not care. such a person. I also I'll I'll out myself a little bit and and you know perhaps treat this as an apology for my abject failure at that game. Um, I I love Shakespeare's plays, um, and I also love Renaissance poetry, and I have gone on record to say that I think Shakespeare is a much better dramatist than he is a sonnet writer. I find his sonnets just okay for the most part compared to other uh, others of his contemporaries. And so while I while I do teach the sonnets, and, and while I I think there are some great things about them, I don't. They're not my favorites, and yeah. I don't. I have not spent as much time with them as I have with some other things. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, I am. I'm extraordinarily bad at at knowing the numbers of them. I could probably there are maybe half a dozen sonnets that you could have named mm-hmm. that I could have given you numbers for, and maybe not even that. The analogy I'm going to invent here for the the sonnet for Shakespeare's sonnets is that it's like the Rolling Stones catalog. The great songs are incredible, but if you listen to the albums, there's just a lot of hit and miss. 
That's that's the analogy I'm uh-huh. going with. We're both going to be canceled. Yeah, and there's just so many of them, right? He wrote so many. They can't all be bangers. And they're and the, it's not narrative at all. Like there's no right there, except for the dark lady. There's no way to really put them in a particular place. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 somewhat persuaded by the argument, and you know this this helps with the whole you know who was the dark lady, who was the fair youth kind of thing. I'm I'm somewhat persuaded by the idea that Shakespeare's sonnets were written over a long period of time, and that he was kind of experimenting with different narrative voices in different situations, <laughs> such that you can almost associate some of the sonnets with certain characters from the plays at given moments. It's like, oh, this sounds like Othello at this moment, or oh, this sounds like Antonio from The Merchant of Venice. Um, so like again kind of treating the sonnet as like little mini dramatic monologues i like that idea all right then that's see that makes that makes a certain amount of sense although there are a number Mm -hmm. of the sonnets that i just i just love as individual sonnets thank you emily so much for being here is there anything you want to say or plug before we go I want to give a shout out to Carolyn Oliver, my my pal from grad school, who suggested uh, that I might enjoy coming on the podcast, uh, which I did very much. Yeah, thank uh, you. Even so though much. I was I was embarrassed as a uh, sort of exposed as a pseudo Shakespearean. <laughs> How would okay. you have done if I had pulled in Sydney or or Spencer? Uh, my, I, I'm I'm just not a number person. My yep. numbers are bad. So if you would ask me to complete lines, I probably would have done better for you. <laughs> See, this is. The thing I've been saying from the beginning about the games is that I there's no quality control in terms of like mm-hmm. how easy or difficult they are. So people generally get all or nothing. Uh, yep. So, but anyway, thanks for listening. No shame, by the way. No shame Thank on doing you. poorly in no, these I, games. I, 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 I don't feel real shame. Good. <laughs> An expensive spirit and a waste of shame. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Go read some poems, pet some dogs, and support striking workers wherever you find them. In the show notes, you will find the Labor Action Tracker from Cornell School of International Labor Relations. Many thanks to them for maintaining the site. Bye. <laughs>